So at the moment, we don't know for certain if Bo Nix is coming back. Let's say he didn't. Would we want DJ Uyunglele? Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time once again for Locked On Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks. Like, comment, subscribe, please, and thank you wherever you listen to or watch this show. It helps tremendously. Today's episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online has covered this season with more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet Online is where the game starts. So, a lot of mailback questions here on a Friday, which is frankly how I love going into the weekend. Keep the questions coming, whether it's about offense, defense, special teams, players, transfer portal, everything in between. Twitter, YouTube, you know the drill by now, how to get in touch with me and such. Little Ray asks via the YouTube comments, can you talk about the possibility of getting DJ at quarterback? I personally wouldn't want that at all. Mm. I think you either get one more out of bow or you start young with Dante. So I think it'd be most of a show to talk about the ideal quarterback situation for the Ducks, but the prospect of adding DJU does not excite me. It does not completely terrify me either. If you're someone like my man, little Ray here, I think that's how you want me to pronounce it. There's a lot of E's and Y's at the end of it. Ray, not a good Star Wars character. Anyway, that's a different conversation as well. If you're averse to the idea of adding DJU, the one-time five-star and Clemson quarterback disappointment for the Tigers and Dabo Sweeney, I would like to remind you of another five-star quarterback who was at a well-known Power 5 program, had a lot of expectations, and did not live up to them, and had inconsistent play. Does it remind you of anybody? Okay, good. We're on the same page. Now, the difference here is what I've seen from DJU at Clemson compared to what I'd seen from Bo Nix at Auburn, I feel less confident about the prospect of DJU potentially if he were to come to Oregon and compete for the starting job, being able to turn it around the way that Bo Nix did this year. My ideal quarterback situation, just bring back Bo. I'll take Bo coming back all day long. But it is fair and important to recognize that although DJU has had some really bad games, I mean really bad games with Clemson, worse than Bo's bad games at Auburn, DJU's bad games got him benched for a guy in Cade Klubnik who I believe is a true freshman. He's second year or most. First... Young quarterback, regardless. Bo Nix's bad games, you kept him on the field. Maybe that's more a testament to what Auburn's backup quarterback situation was. And they didn't have anybody who they could put in and say, yeah, okay, Bo doesn't have it today. We're going to go with this guy instead. Clemson had that sort of guy. And Cade Klubnik looks like their quarterback of the future. But the bad games for DJU looked like they were warranting of a removal from the game. Whereas Bo's bad games, yeah, there were bad stretches, but 
really in the SEC games that he played at Auburn, the bad bow moniker that he got, which we didn't see a lot of this year at Oregon, not coincidentally, might I add, because he had a better supporting cast and better coaching staff around him. He was a part of two different coaching staffs at Auburn that got fired by the Tigers. Almost like having a good coach and having a good cast around you matters and whatnot. But the bad bow that you saw there were really bad moments more than they were bad entire games. When DJU had a bad game this year, man, it was ugly. I mean, it was really, really, he was in a single game. I believe the number was eight for 29. And it's curious that a guy like that could go eight for 29 in a game. This is not Braxton Burmeister, who had a decent arm, but not amazing, and was small and wasn't ready to play. DJU had sat for a year. DJU had played a little bit his first year on campus. He's big. He's got a big arm. And he is operating, or playing, was, I should say, under a head coach in Dabo Sweeney that has been around the game of football a time or two. If you want to be more optimistic about the prospect of adding DJU, who I will continue to refer to him as because it's easier than hearing me botch the name Uyunglele, which maybe I'm not, but you get the point I'm making here. The defense of him there would be that Clemson, from last year to this year, lost their coordinators. I don't remember when Tony Elliott left, but Brent Venables left. But Tony Elliott was the offensive coordinator. Venables, the defensive coordinator. You might say, well, what does losing a DC have to do with it? Dabo Sweeney is the head coach. Might have been operating in a different way. Had more responsibilities here versus there. Has a different feel, different vibe within the program. Obviously, though, the offensive coordinator is is more important. I'm going to look that up uh, real quick here. But I, I think that when you when you look at DJU, who was hired this year as Virginia's head coach, so that change was there, and he didn't have that sort of continuity. There's a defense for the case of adding him and saying he could have a resurgence like Bo Nix did coming from Auburn to Oregon. But I don't think it's quite as comparable because losing the offensive coordinator, yeah, maybe that wasn't wasn't supremely helpful. And by the way, DJ used games this year. It's not like they were all bad. There were several in which it looked really bad, but when he was on, he looked like the five-star quarterback Clemson had recruited. We have seen flashes of it, glimpses of it, bits and pieces. He just didn't string it together for the entire season. The other comparison here between DJ and Bo is that Bo had three years of starting experience under his belt. So he'd seen a lot. DJ, you would be a little bit more of a project, so to speak, in that He had a new offensive coordinator this year, so a different guy calling plays, a different guy in his ear when he goes and picks up the phone on the sideline. And just a quick aside, every time I picture a college quarterback picking up the phone to talk to his OC, I think of the Notre Dame quarterback, Drew Pine, who is in the transfer portal as well, uh, picking it up to talk to Tommy Reese, and they cut to the camera of Tommy Reese, and he's just ripping him a new one. Uh, It's it's classic. It's, It's classic football coaches. But... He does not have as much experience starting as Bo Nix did. So he hasn't seen quite as much. And that's another reason that I'm 
lower on him than Bo Nix. Because Bo had played for three years. He had grown each year, statistically. His completion percentage kept getting better. His touchdown-interception ratio kept getting better. And that was with a continually changing coaching staff. DJU, we really have one year of evaluation. And you would be banking on a guy who has played more than Ty Thompson, sure, but was inconsistent, and it looked like it was between the ears. That's what was holding him back. Because you can't look at him physically and say, well, he just doesn't have the arm strength, doesn't have this. No, he just couldn't process stuff correctly. Maybe, maybe there's a shred of optimism in there if this is an option for Oregon at the quarterback position, which it could be. You can bet that coaching has a big impact on that. That's not the sort of thing you can bet at Bet Online, but you can get everything else because it's your number one source for sports betting info, stats, news, and analysis. I have to get more and more creative with these live reads because I know that you're looking for them now. But I think I snuck that one in pretty well. Get the latest odds and trends for every professional and amateur league out there, from football to basketball to soccer and esports. We've got it all at betonline.net. And if you love sports podcasts, you can find those at betonline as well. We're always the fastest and easiest way to get your betting fix. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more. BetOnline is, as always, where the game starts. When you watch DJU struggle, it's a player component, but there has to be a coaching component to it as well. So if this does end up being a guy who comes to Oregon, and we still have to wait word on on Bo Nix, and I'll talk about the prospect of him staying if we don't hear over the weekend here uh, in, in the coming episodes on the show. You have to realize that the offensive coordinator and the offensive staff and it clicking with the player so that he is reading the defense correctly, understanding the scheme, understanding where he needs to go with the football. All of that has to blend together to make a good, productive quarterback. And Kenny Dillingham had that history with Bo Nix, and they picked it up pretty seamlessly, right? Oregon couldn't execute in the red zone, but they moved the ball against Georgia. And then after that, they were only held under 30 points once, and that was against Utah, and Bo had one leg. So it was a pretty seamless transition there. That's the other risk you'd be taking. DJU doesn't have a history with any of the coaches on staff, at least not that I am aware of. We didn't get any coaches from Clemson in the offseason. Maybe one or two of them have spoken to him, recruit. But regardless, they haven't had the sort of work together that Kenny Dillingham and Bo had. So that's another reason I don't know that it's particularly likely. He's a California native. He went to St. John Bosco. It's where his brother is at. And I will reiterate again, if you didn't hear yesterday's show with John Garcia, that they are not a package deal. Mateo is a five-star edge prospect on the defensive side of the ball. DJ was a five-star quarterback, probably grades lower than that in the transfer portal, according to 24-7. I haven't checked, but that would be my guess. They are not seen as a package deal. Clemson was never really in the running for Mateo. So the idea that you have to get Mateo or have to get DJ in order to get Mateo, not true. There's a really good chance, it seems, they'll end up at different schools. They could end up at the same school, but that would be more coincidence than they went there together. So I'm not as high on on DJ as I was on Bo, but go back to what I was saying before Bo Nix 
started playing games for Oregon, and he earned our respect almost immediately after the Georgia game, right? I think the BYU game, because Eastern Washington, you're like, ah, well, we don't really know. It's an FCS opponent. But BYU, that was a great game from Bo Nix, and that was when we all went, whoa. Hey, this guy looks a lot better than he did in the SEC. And going from the ACC to the Pac-12 is more of an upgrade in competition. It's maybe a lateral move, but Pac-12 is better than than the ACC right now. But I don't think it's as much better as it is as far as it is below the SEC. Does that make sense? So, like, if you were to grade the upgrade in competition from the ACC to the Pac-12, it'd be like a three. But the downgrade in competition overall from the SEC to the Pac-12, I think is like a four or a, or a five out of, I don't know, seven. I made that up on the fly to try and make it easy. But if that didn't make sense, just shoot me a message. I'll try and explain it. But I, I'm not wild about it. But on Bo, I was indifferent. I was indifferent. And now here we are saying, man, I hope Bo comes back for a second year. So if I'm low on DJU, not all the way out. I'm not here saying, nope, wouldn't want him. He's... Awful, terrible, no good, very bad. Can't take him. He is unaddable in the transfer portal. Can't do that. Then maybe he could become a quarterback who's at least good. So those are my thoughts on uh, DJU. Thank you for the question. Another one from Ray Wissig. I imagine there is a particular type of recruit for each position the coaching staff would want. Team character is a recurring theme. Thoughts? The coaching staff is going to have the opportunity, not just next year, but in years beyond that as well, to show us that the defensive shortcomings that we saw kind of festering throughout the year and then materializing against the Beavs and the Huskies at the end of the season was more a function of the personnel that was in place and less a function of their ability to scheme a defense and make adjustments in the game on Saturdays. It does make sense that this coaching staff would want a typical or a certain type of player. I don't think yet we can fully know what that player is because even if you were to look at Dan Lanning's defense at Georgia and say, well, they want these sorts of bodies, they want that. Yeah, Everybody would like to have a defense like the one Lanning had when they won a national championship, where you have five first-round picks and 15 total players from the team. And though Oregon can recruit at a high level, I think we can agree we're not able to get to a place, maybe Dan and company will prove me wrong one day, but I don't see five first-round picks coming out of Oregon from a single defense. The most we've ever had in the first round. I don't know if we've had more than one in a while. Gosh, I'm trying to think. Because Buckner and Armstead were both first round picks. They came out in different years. Buckner was uh, was the year after Armstead went. Yeah, that'd be a, that'd be a good tidbit for, for somebody to look up. Last time Oregon had two first round draft selections. It won't happen this year. Gonzo will probably go in the first round. But it looks like if Noah Sewell declares, which I expect him to, he probably falls to like the third round, second, second, third round somewhere in, in there. I haven't looked at mock drafts. That's just kind of my my guess. So 
I am curious to see, you know, with this high school recruiting class they're putting together, together the transfer portal guys that they add, what sort of players they are looking for. I think overall, what they're going to change from the previous administration and the players they had is team speed. I think Oregon's team speed, particularly in the back end of the secondary, not great. You know, Bennett Williams, good player, good tackler, good guy in the box. But we saw when he needed to kick it into high gear to make plays against Washington, he just was not fast enough. And there were other examples of that throughout the season. And Noah Sewell is a really good player, is a really good run stuffer. Is he that fast? He gets up to a certain level that is good in straight line speed, but is he as agile, is he as explosive as an athlete as Lanning is accustomed to having from his time at Georgia? Probably not. So I, I think at those positions in particular, you know, offensively, we see what they're going for at the running back position. They want guys who were, you know, lower center of gravity. Dowdell is a little bit taller than you know, Bucky Irving and and Jordan James and Noah Whittington and such, but they want physical, mostly downhill runners. Irving's kind of that that change of pace back a little bit. And, you know, on the on the receiving front, it's not that hard to identify good receivers. Everybody's going for basically the same sort of guys. Um, I am curious a transfer portal name to watch, Deshaun Stribling from Washington State. Similar body type to Dante Thornton. We saw him go for for some notable plays against the Ducks this year up in Pullman. I would be very, very interested in getting him. Dorian Singer as well. But I look at Stribling and I say, that looks a lot like Dante Thornton. Quite, quite a bit. And Thornton started to get more involved in the offense, but he was also not playing really until Chase Cota got hurt. So maybe that's not what they view as a as a particular uh a particular style of receiver that that they're shooting for all the time. But I think team speed defensively is overall what they're going for. And then defensively, in the front four, I, I think we again have to wait. You know, like I, I could try and answer your question here, Ray, directly. I imagine there's a particular type of recruit. I think we need to be in wait and see mode because most of these guys, I mean, Casey Rogers, Jordan Riley, who were solid this year, Christian Gonzalez, those are the guys that they brought in. Bucky Irving, Noah Whittington, so we know that. But they didn't bring in somebody at every position, right? They inherited the rest of the players. And maybe some of them are the sorts of of body types and, and skill sets that they're looking for going forward. But I think right now we don't really know. And you can speculate a little based on the high school class and watch these guys tape, but until... You, you see who the Ducks bring in in the portal, particularly on defense in, in that front four, and how those high school kids eventually pan out for the ones that do. Of course, they, they don't all, but some of them do, or at least you would hope. Then we'll have a better idea of this question. But I agree with your premise on there's a particular type of recruit for each position that they're, that they are looking for. And I think if you're considering you know what that might be going forward— I think you look at the guys that they brought in as, quote-unquote, their guys in year one via the transfer portal. Gonzo, long, very twitchy, good tackler. Fairly physical, but very long corner, right? They played Triquez Bridges at the other corner, who I thought got a lot better as the year went on. By the way, that's clearly what they're looking for on the edge. They want guys 
who have got some size, who are six foot to to six three, kind of in that sort of range. Running back, they want guys to be physical, downhill runners, finish your runs, be physical in between the tackles, and that fits what what they're going for. I think if you follow that sort of trend, then you'll get an idea of what to expect from guys who who they want to bring in or who they are bringing at the high school or transfer portal ranks. Speaking of Oregon's defense, uh, an interesting name sends in an interesting question from the YouTube comments. And there was uh, just one all-conference nominee or two all-conference nominees on the first or second team from the defense this year. Gonzo on the first team, Noah Sewell was on the second team. I think both of those are appropriate. Uh, Just real quick, other all-conference nominees, TJ Bass, Alex Forsyth on the offensive line. First teamers, again, well-deserved. Troy Franklin on the second team, Brandon Dorless on the second team. Again, I think that's all pretty darn appropriate. Those were consistently Oregon's best players this year. And then honorable mention, Big Sala, Chase Cota, Terrence Ferguson, Bucky Irving, DJ Johnson, Camden Lewis, Bo Nix, Ryan Walk, and Bennett Williams. So solid showing, not the best all-conference year uh, list of nominees for, for the Ducks. And I think that's kind of expected when you look at how the season ended. And the number of holes that this team has to fix, which I, I think I'll start getting into next week, because there are a lot more holes than you might realize on uh, this Oregon team going into next year. It's why it's so fascinating. Defense is one, one of them. And 8D400C4, all right, uh, he asks, or she, defense was maddening because against the Utes, Y-O-O-T-S, I dig it. They were terrific. Agree. They gave up 10 total points against the very same team that put up video game numbers against USC just a few weeks later. That was part of the huge frustration against the Huskies and Beavers. Same personnel, but vastly different outcomes. How does that even happen? I about not off my dang thumbs. So the answer to this question is scheme, play calling, and adjustments which sound like they're the same thing, but they're three different things. So the scheme that you are running is based on your personnel as a coaching staff, and that is you know, a 4-2-5 base formation for the Ducks with five defensive backs on the field, two linebackers, four down linemen, and then whatever your base coverage is, whatever your base coverage is, right? So if they're going tempo, what are you going to be in just to get a play calling? Is it going to be two man? I think we ran a lot of two high safety this year because we had that fifth defensive back to kind of bring down into the box. It was a lot of quarters and and cover two. We did not do a lot of single high safety looks where we were in cover one or or in cover three. So that's the scheme that Oregon ran and how the offensive coordinators Ryan Grubb at Washington and Brian Lindgren at Oregon State chose to attack that was different. And then you also think about the shifting and the the, the personnel and how the how the assignments work up front with with the front six, right? The two linebackers and the four defensive linemen. Because that's something that Lindgren was really able to exploit in the running game in uh, the game formerly known as the Civil War. So the scheme is one part of it. The second thing is play calling. And when you say play calling in football, you jump to the offensive side of the ball because the offense is what's driving everything in this sport, right? It starts to play. You watch the ball. You got to score points to win, all that sort of stuff. The play calling in key situations to anticipate 
What the other team is going to do is something where Oregon has to be better. It's why they were so bad on third down. They sent in a certain play call, and based on what the other team was running on offense or what they were trying to do on offense, who they were trying to get the ball to, where they were trying to get it, what sort of blocking scheme they were trying to run, Oregon was not able to generate enough pressure. They were not able to stay consistently glued to wide receivers, and they allowed too many open players on third down. So the play calling, again, is a part of it. The third thing that I mentioned is adjustments. You see tendencies for an offense start to develop. You have a game plan going in, right? Maybe you've tweaked your scheme. You've tweaked your your assignments, right? Like if you notice that, um, what's a good example? Those old Arizona State teams with Brock Osweiler, they used to run a lot of two-back set, a lot of 21 personnel, two backs, one tight end, and they'd motion one out into the flat, and they would always have that as an option for Osweiler in the running game, right? They'd motion him out and he could hand it off or throw it out wide. And that was the read on a lot of their running sets. So when you know that a team is going to do that defensively at practice throughout the week, the coaches may change up assignments within your base personnel and say, hey, normally you have this assignment and this responsibility here and you're responsible for this gap or this portion of the field, but because they're going to present this look and we want to take that away, this is what it's going to be Instead, orchestrating a defense, like orchestrating an offense, is very, very complicated. But the in-game adjustments were not sufficient. And I think that's the biggest answer to this question about what went wrong for Oregon's defense. They did not adjust over the course of the game. They had a game plan. The offense has got a game plan. It's all about scheme and matchups and play calling. But then... As another team finds success with one area offensively, you have to be able to, within the course of that game, adjust. If you're seeing that Washington is getting the ball out on these deep out routes quickly, you'd like to see them get into a coverage or get into a blitz package that either doesn't allow that route time to develop or takes away that option for Michael Penix. But those adjustments did not come. And the biggest thing in that game, frankly, was Penix had too much time to throw. But the adjustments, and maybe the personnel just weren't able to execute what adjustments were attempted in that game, because I can't imagine, at least I would hope, that Landing and Lupoy are not out there just saying, hey, we're going to keep trying the same thing over and over and hope it eventually works. I can't imagine that they do that. They're too good and too experienced of coaches to just keep trying the same thing over and over. It felt that way in the Oregon State game for sure, and I don't think they made proper adjustments there. But that's the element that was missing from the defense, is as other teams came out and showed you what they can do and what they were trying to do and what they would do in key situations, Oregon just was not able to adjust. Personnel is a part of that, but overall, scheme, play calling, and I just forgot the other, uh, the, <laughs> the third one that, that I laid out a moment ago because sometimes my mind goes blank. But that's where, that's where the Oregon defense, play calling, scheme, play calling, adjustments. Yeah, those are the three. Those are the areas where Oregon's defense was let down. And against Utah, the defense worked because they came out with a great game plan, a great approach, and individual players played exceptionally well. But I thought that defense, and frankly, the defense against Oregon State, particularly defending the pass, was different than how it looked the rest of the season. 
But then that left them vulnerable on the ground, and then they couldn't adjust to that. And that's what has to get better going forward. Hope that answers the question. It wasn't too complicated. If it doesn't make sense, we got all offseason to talk about it. Happy to clarify. Shoot me a message. YouTube comment. Ask the questions. Keep them rolling. I appreciate everyone listening. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And as always, my fellow brethren, go Ducks.